Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the new episode of The Locals Podcast, Talking France. In this week's show, we'll bring listeners up to date with some of the biggest news and talking points in France, including bread. Yes, we have some big news about baguettes. With French President Emmanuel Macron whining and dining on a state visit to the US, we'll look at the ups and downs in Franco-American relations over the years and find out why Macron is far from happy with his US counterpart, Joe Biden. We'll introduce you to one of France's most influential women in history and hear why her name is back in the news this week. Plus, we'll head to one particular part of the country that's very different to the rest of France, not least because it has its own public holidays and Christmas traditions. And the ballot for the tickets for the Paris 2024 Olympics opens on Thursday. We'll give you all the info and tips on how you can get your hands on some. As always, I'll be joined by the local France's editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, French language expert and founder of French Today Camille Chevalier-Carfis and special guest from CNN Jim Bitterman. Emma, Jen, good to have you back with us. Everything okay? Yeah, although we're really cold, but that's kind of good because we think it's nearly cold enough to have our first fondue of the winter. Definitely. I've already had mine, although I was actually crying before, not through sadness, but I had my first taste of Dijon mustard in about a year and a half. There has been a shortage in France, but I I managed to find a pot in the local supermarket and forgot how strong it was and put a load over my chipolata sausage sandwich. And uh, it really brought back memories of uh, Dijon mustard. It's, but what's the latest on the shortage? Uh, it's easing slightly. That's probably why you found it. They're actually bringing uh, mustard seed growing. There's long-term plans to bring mustard seed growing back in France because at the minute the seeds are mostly grown in Canada and the mustard is only made in France. But they're looking to bring the actual agriculture back. So we might be all right for next year. Fantastic. Okay, we should get on with the news and talking points. Emma, I'm sorry to say, we're talking about COVID again. Oh, I know, I know. I would be happy to never mention this again for the rest of my life, but here we are. This week, the French Prime Minister speaking in Parliament has made what she called a solemn appeal for people to start wearing masks on public transport again. And this is because cases are again surging. France is now reporting an average of about 40,000 new cases a day. And we had 400 COVID deaths last week. So it does appear that it's back. It's definitely back in the news. Yes, we all read about this solemn appeal from the French Prime Minister. What is the mask rule then? Well, it's not actually a rule. And what uh, what Elizabeth Bourne said doesn't change anything. It's just a recommendation at this stage. And in fact, it's always been a recommendation to wear masks on public transport, especially at rush hour. The health state of emergency that was in place has now expired. So if the government did want to bring back any new actual rules like masks, health passes or anything, that would have to go all the way through Parliament again so it's not something that's likely to come back quickly if they do feel the need to do it. Now this time last year uh, as many listeners will remember there were all sorts of travel restrictions in place. I remember having to dash to the border to try and get a train to the UK just before they actually closed it. What about this Christmas? Is there anything travellers need to know about? 
Uh, no, it's much freer this uh, this Christmas. There are no current travel restrictions. There's no requirement to show proof of vaccination to enter France. And the vaccine pass that we were using is no longer in force. In terms of masks, they're only actually compulsory in some healthcare settings, such as hospitals, care homes. Some pharmacies are asking customers to wear a mask to enter. But other than that, they're not actually the rule for anywhere. But if you're travelling on French trains or on the Paris metro, you'll probably hear public services announcements which are telling you that the mask is fortement recommandé, so strongly recommended. Okay, thanks for that important update, Emma. Now let's move on to something slightly different. Jen, baguettes and the United Nations, what have they got in common? Well, yes, they have something in common. That is because the French baguette has been added to the UNESCO World Heritage List of intangible culture. So it's basically the savoir-faire or the know-how behind making the baguette and the culinary traditions that surround it that have been given this special status with the UN. So a baguette, before we get into a little bit more about it, uh, it's made of four ingredients and just four. So it's flour, water, yeast, and salt. And it really depends on the skill of the baker to create something very special uh, out of this delicious bread. Okay, are there any other French foods on this UNESCO uh, World Heritage list? So this is the first French food to be added to the list, although in 2010 the culture of French gastronomy was given UNESCO heritage status, uh, but that's pretty broad. And then there are a lot of French festivals and craft traditions that are on the list too, like the Breton Festnoz festivals and the perfume-making tradition of Grasse in the south of France. Fantastic. Emma, any tips on French baguettes? Uh, yeah, always ask for a tradition in the uh, in the boulangerie. They're the ones that are made to the traditional status. They're about 10 cents more expensive, but they're definitely 10 cents worth of delicious. Absolutely. Yeah, one problem I always have with French baguettes is you buy one and then it always feels a lot of it goes to waste. But what I've taken to now is cutting it in half and freezing it and then I toasting have... it the next day. Works. I have a trick, actually. Um, with my baguette, I put it in the microwave because I don't have an actual like bread place to keep the moisture out and everything. And so I like to put my bread in the microwave so that it kind of stays longer. Controversial, I think Jen. Jen's about to be deported from yeah. France. So yeah, it was great having you on, Jen. I don't, I don't like heat it up in the microwave. I just store Jen, it. Jen, stop. You dig in. <laughs> we might have to edit this bit out, Jen, to keep, keep you in France. Okay, we better move on quickly. Each week on Talking France, we like to talk about the people who are in the news in France. Emma, this week we've picked a French woman who has played a hugely significant role in France's recent history. So much so, she's one of the few women to be buried in the famous Pantheon landmark in Paris. And she's back in the news. Who is it? She is, yeah. She's incredibly famous in France. She's referred to often by one name, so like Madonna levels are famous. Uh, her face appears everywhere. You can even see like murals of her on post boxes in some places. But she's pretty much unknown outside of France, which... I think is unfair. Her name is Simone Veil. Uh, she's a Holocaust survivor. She was a minister in the French government. She was the first female president of the European Parliament. And also significantly, she is the author of the law that finally legalised abortion in France. Yeah, you do always see the name Simone Veil in headlines or in discussions on French TV. And it's important to know who she is. She died in 2017, of course. But why is she back in the news in France this week, Emma? She's back in the news because of a rather groundbreaking moment that happened in French politics this week when MPs in the Assemblée Nationale, the Parliament, voted overwhelmingly in favour of making abortion a constitutional right in France. Now, it's already legal, obviously. It's been legal since 1975. But this vote paves the way to actually adding it into the Constitution 
protection, along with things like protection of the freedom of expression and legal equality between men and women, although there are quite a lot of steps to, to go through next, but this was the, the key one. And the law that finally made abortion legal in France is known as the Loi Veil, after Simone Veil, because she was the health minister who drafted the law and she really pushed to get it through Parliament against some really quite bitter opposition. She's widely seen as the sort of godmother of the bill and another bill that came later that year to make contraception accessible to all. So that's why on any demos that have anything to do with women's rights or anything, you'll often see banners that simply say, Merci Simone. Thank you, Simone. And in 2015, she was named the most admired person on the planet by voters in France. Wow. Now, as you alluded to just uh, shortly before, what makes Simone Veil such an interesting figure is that her story is far more than just being behind this landmark abortion bill. Tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, her life story is fascinating and it's quite harrowing as well, actually. When she was 16, she was arrested by the Gestapo and she was deported to Auschwitz along with her family. Both her parents and her brother died in concentration camps, but Simone and her sisters survived. She came back to France, she completed her studies, she married, she worked as a lawyer and then she entered politics. And as well as being a a pioneering feminist who was responsible for these very landmark bills in French law, she also believed very passionately in the EU as a project and she kind of very much saw it as the best way to avoid a repeat of the horrors of World War II, which she was obviously intimately acquainted with. So after being in the French government, she was elected as a member of the European Parliament and she became the Parliament's first female president in 1979. Honestly, I could talk about her all day because she's amazing and fascinating, but we're sort of barely scratching the surface here. But there is a new film coming out, which is a biopic of her life. It's called Simone, Le Voyage du Siècle. It's had really good reviews, so I highly recommend going to see that. And if you're in Paris, there is a screening of it with English subtitles on December 16th. Brilliant. Sounds fantastic. An incredible story there. Thanks, Emma. Now on Talking France, we like to focus on a particular part of the country in the news. And this week, it's time to head east to the historic region of Alsace, which stands on the border with Germany. It's famous for its castles, wines and regional dishes like choucroute and the casserole bakaroff. I really don't think I pronounced that right. Things are a little different over in Alsace, not least Emma, because December the 6th is the big day in their calendar. What is it? What are we talking about? Yeah, December 6th is St Nicholas Day, which is a huge thing in Germany, but there's one part of France that celebrates it too, and that is Alsace. And to understand a bit more about it, I spoke to Camille Chevalier-Carfils. She's the founder of the language website French Today, but more relevantly for this part, her mum comes from Alsace, and so her family always celebrates St Nicholas Day. So can you explain to us what St. Nicholas Day is, when it is, and where it is celebrated? Absolutely. So St. Nicholas Day happens in the night from the 5th to the 6th of December. And uh, it's celebrated in the uh, northeast side of France, as well as in all the countries nearby, like uh, Germany. St. Nicholas was a real saint in the Catholic tradition. He lived And then there's a story, a myth about him that he rescued uh, children that had been butchered by an ogre, actually, and uh, he saved them. So that's the Catholic part of St. Nicholas. Now, the tradition about St. Nicholas is that in places like Alsace or Lorraine in France, on the night of December 5th to 6th, St. Nicholas goes to houses to bring candy to good children, usually dried fruits, mandarin, cakes, candies, chocolates, especially uh, gingerbread cookies. Actually, you can see a resemblance with Santa Claus because uh, uh, Santa Claus really was inspired by Saint Nick. 
San Nicola. <laughs> Fantastic. And it's only really celebrated in some parts of, of France, is that right? It's not really a yes. countrywide tradition. Why is that? Abs- absolutely, because it's a, it's a Germanic tradition. So it's only the part of France that are close, that have some mixed culture with uh, Germanic influences that celebrate uh, St. Nicholas. Excellent. So this is the sort of Alsace-Lorraine region that was uh, at one time part of Germany. Absolutely. But you can still, I mean, it's it's also, you know, some people who have some um, ancestry in this uh, in this part of France may celebrate St. Nicholas in other parts of France. Like, I'm in Brittany right now. With my daughter, I would sometimes, you know, celebrate St. Nicholas and tell her at least, do you know what today is? Because it's a family tradition for us. That was Camille Chevalier-Carfis from French Today. Really interesting. But Emma, uh, why is it only in this one part of France? What's different about Alsace? Well, it's because of history and also geography. So Alsace, as you already said, is on the border between France and Germany, and it swapped back between the countries several times. It was progressively brought into France in the 16th and 17th centuries, but a lot of people in that area spoke German. And in 1871, it was annexed by Germany, which at that point had just won the Franco-Prussian War, so was kind of in a position to make demands. It remained a part of Germany until 1918, when it was passed back to France as part of war reparations after World War One, And it was then occupied again by Germany during World War Two, but not before the French government had evacuated almost the entire population, 600,000 people from the area in the run-up to the war. So... This kind of history of swapping about means that you've got an area that's got its own cultural identity and it can be quite different to the rest of France. Um, It has its own dialect, Alsatian, although obviously French is the official language of the region now. And you can see the German influence a lot in food. So there's lots of lovely German gingerbread, lots of cabbagey stuff, that stew that neither of us can pronounce correctly. And in a lot of its cultural traditions. So St Nicholas Day is is marked there. And Christmas is a much bigger thing in that part of uh, France and it definitely has the best markets in France as well. And when it comes to Christmas, they get a bonus over in Alsace that the rest of the country doesn't get. Yeah, they get an extra day off. In fact, uh, they have two extra days off throughout the year. Most of France gets 11 public holidays a year, which, you know, I'm fine with. It's it's enough. But the three départements that make up the historic region of Alsace have 13 because they also get a day off for Good Friday and they get December 26th, St Stephen's Day off as well. Perhaps more significantly than public holidays, they actually have some slightly different laws as well. The French secularity law, laïcité as it's known, doesn't apply in the same way in this area. And that's because when it was introduced to France in 1905, Alsace was still in Germany. So you have some differences to how it's applied. So you can have like religious schools, for example, and state funding of religious groups is allowed in these three départements of historic Alsace. Fantastic. The Christmas market is meant to be the best in France. We probably should recommend listeners to visit it and tell us all about it. Okay. Thank you, Emma. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, the UK might like to talk about its special relationship with the US, but when the American leaders speak warmly of their oldest ally, they're talking about France. These oldest of allies haven't always seen eye to eye, of course, over the years. But as we speak, French President Emmanuel Macron is in the US on a state visit, his second to the country, in fact, where he's been welcomed by President Joe Biden. The visit will culminate in a no-expense-spared state banquet at the White House on Thursday evening. Before we hear about the grievances that Macron has with Biden, Jen, just take us back a few years, will you, and remind us of some of the key ups and downs in relations between France and the US. So there's a lot to cover here, Ben. So I'll I'll try to stick to the highlights and the lowlights, if you will. Uh, So the friendship first started during the American Revolutionary War, when French troops, and particularly their powerful navy, came to the aid of General George Washington and his army. And it was in large part thanks to the French fleet that the Americans were able to secure a victory at Yorktown and eventually declare their independence from Great Britain and win the war. Another good time was the gifting of the Statue of Liberty, uh, which was paid for by the French people, actually. Uh, and created by French artists and engineers. And then Lady Liberty herself was dedicated in 1886 as a representation of the friendship between the two nations and as a symbol of liberty, which was a concept that both countries were fighting for. And in French, she's actually called La Liberté éclairant le monde. And of course, France and the USA were allies in both world wars, uh, a period during which many lives were lost. Okay, now there have, of course, been some tenser moments over the years. In fact... I was reminded of one. Recently, I was in a bar watching France-Australia football during the World Cup. France were winning, I think 3-1. When the fourth goal went in, all these guys started shouting, Eh putain, ça c'est pour les sous-marins! Which basically (laughs) means, you know, that's for the effing submarines. And I was like, what are they talking about? And then the whole bar joined into a chant of sous-marins, sous-marins. They were, of course, Jen, referring to a recent political crisis involving France, the US and Australia when Australia pulled out of a submarine deal with the French and went for a a similar deal with the US. So anyway, that was one of the more fraught moments in recent history. Tell us about some more. So one of the notable rocky moments uh, was actually during the American Civil War. So at this time, Napoleon III was running France and France was technically neutral in America's Civil War, but in reality, Napoleon was a tacit supporter of the Confederacy, mostly because of the cotton industry. But there's a Another reason, too. Napoleon actually wanted to expand French influence over Mexico. And so while the Americans were busy fighting each other, he sent French troops to reinstate the Mexican monarchy. Then there was another bad time for these oldest allies, and that came directly after World War II. So the two countries were, of course, allies during the war. But Franklin Roosevelt is known for having really disliked General Charles de Gaulle. And he even wanted to put France under a type of proctorate governing system, an AMGOT for the history buffs among us. Um, And that's the same regime that was put into place in Germany. And finally, there's the Iraq War. Uh, Even though the French were in solidarity with the United States after 9-11, French President Jacques Chirac refused to join the U.S.-led coalition that invaded Iraq in 2003. And then the Americans retaliated, uh, and they renamed French fries that were sold at congressional cafes Freedom Fries. And the Simpsons even got on board, too, uh, with an episode where they called the French cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Okay, that's the past. What about the present? While Biden and Macron seem to be on good terms. There are reasons, some big ones in fact, for friction between the two governments, Jen. 
Yes, so this state visit is not just about banquets and lunches. There are some serious disagreements that are looming over the trip and that have the potential to cause tension between the U.S. and France and Europe. Uh, So to find out more about these points of friction, I spoke with Jim Bitterman, veteran CNN journalist who's been covering France for over four decades. It's uh, Jim Bitterman. I'm the CNN senior European correspondent based in Paris. I've been in France since 1980 and, in fact, covered a lot of presidential elections, all sorts of things, and uh, definitely uh, several state visits. I was uh, around in France covering things when uh, uh, President Macron went to the United States to see President Trump four years ago, and now he becomes uh, probably one of the few world leaders who can actually claim to have two state visits at the White House, first with Trump and now with President Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, basically I've watched France uh, change a great deal, and the relationships go up and down between France and the United States. Definitely. My primary question is just what you make of Biden having chosen Macron as the first state visit. I'm aware that it's halfway through his administration and the delays are mostly because of COVID. But I'm just curious what you think of as in terms of what that means for the relationship between the U.S. and France. I think one of the more difficult issues between the United States and France uh, over the last year or so has been the submarine deal that was blown up between France and Australia. Basically, Australia backed out of the submarine deal after uh, having said that they were going to rely on the French to build them some new submarines. And the Americans and the United Kingdom uh, took up the slack and and decided they were going to build the submarines in place of France. And the French were very much upset about that. Now, a couple of things have happened since then. One is that, uh, in fact, the French got a a big payout, over 500 billion euros, from the Australians to compensate for the breaking of that contract. And this state visit, perhaps at its uh, when first they were first talking about it, it may have had something to do with that soothing ruffled feathers. Because I think, you know, as I mentioned, that President Macron is one of the few world leaders who can say that he's had two state visits to the White House. In any case, that seems to have died down quite a bit. And I think what they really are concerned about on this visit are the issues around surrounding Ukraine. How are they going to get, both leaders going to get Ukraine through the winter and what kind of things they can do to help in the energy crisis. There's also a couple of energy-related issues that are going to be on the table as well. One is the fact that while the U.S. has doubled the amount of liquefied natural gas and it's flowing into Europe, being transported into Europe, the Europeans are not very happy about the prices that they are having to pay for the liquefied natural gas. So that's another issue. And then there was the Inflation Reduction Act, which is an act which the United States Congress passed basically to help ordinary Americans get through the inflationary period. But some of it does have impact on European companies because some of the provisions of the act are either tax subsidies or just direct subsidies to American companies who are dealing in American products. And the Europeans feel that's unfair competition. One of the subsidies, for example, is that Americans can get a $7,500 tax break if they buy an electric vehicle that is made in the United States. And the Europeans are saying that's unfair competition. And then I was just wondering, so you've mentioned uh, the American relationship with Europe, but in terms of France specifically, it's interesting to me that Biden chose Macron of all the European leaders to have as his first state visit, and that it almost seems that a lot of these frustrations with the Americans that Europe might be facing are kind of being represented as the French frustrations as well. And I was just wondering if, in your opinion, the U.S. kind of sees France as the leader of Europe? Well, I think that's that's true. I think that Macron, for one thing, uh, is a person who 
would like to construct himself as the president of Europe or the man who most represents uh, European issues, uh, I think it was Henry Kissinger who said, you know, when I want to call Europe, who do I call? Well, it turns out that Macron would be happy if the U.S. would turn to him as the leader of Europe. Now, you have to say, well, where are the other European leaders and why are they not stepping forward here? But Macron has been in the forefront of any number of on any number of issues. Ukraine was one. And I think that's going to continue in the future because I think he believes that that is his role unless someone else comes along and challenges him in that role. So, yes, I do think that he believes anyway that France should take the lead for Europe and should speak for Europe. The other Europeans may have a less opinion of that idea than uh, than he does. So earlier you mentioned that this is kind of emblematic of other French presidents as well, this effort to be the diplomatic nation to try to position yourself in between two opposing parties. And I was just wondering if you could situate this state visit and this period in time for Franco American relations in comparison with other state visits. There have definitely been some moments that have been more tense than others. And I'm just curious, like how you would compare this moment in time between France and the U.S. uh, to those other previous moments in Franco-American relations. Well, I think uh, the Trump period was one of the the most difficult for the French ever, because I think that they, you know, the United States, when they pull out of the climate change accords, when they pull out of the uh, JCPOA, the uh, the Iran nuclear agreement. These are things the French believed in and continue to believe in and Biden has taken America back into. But uh, that was really a very difficult time. I think, I don't know if you remember, but uh, there would be a time when Mr. Trump, make America great again, was counterbalanced by Mr. Macron establishing a program to woo uh, American scholars to come to France with a program he called Make the Planet Great Again. Uh, So it's been uh, a lot of back and forth, uh, certainly in the Trump era. But before that as well, one of the more difficult periods was when Bush was pressed for war in Iraq and overthrow Saddam Hussein. And France uh, very much snubbed uh, the president's interest in doing that. And in fact, sent the foreign minister to uh, Vilpin to the United Nations, where he spoke out quite strongly against uh, any kind of conflict in Iraq. So there have been these periods uh, that dust ups uh, in the relationship. But, you know, the overall is that you've got to remember that France is considered America's first ally for a number of reasons. First, of, of the Revolutionary War and then Lafayette. And one of the things that Emmanuel Macron is going to be doing Later on today, as he's going to be visiting the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington Cemetery, but he's also going to pay a little bit of respect to Pierre L'Enfant, whose grave is in Arlington Cemetery. And L'Enfant, right after the Revolutionary War, actually laid out the plan for Washington, D.C. He was the architect of Washington, D.C. And so that connection between France and the United States goes way, way back. And uh, as a consequence, I think it's a pretty solid connection. They have the dust-ups that occur over for issues, primarily economic issues, but long term, uh, it's it's a pretty solid relationship. Really interesting insight from CNN's Jim Bitterman there. Thanks a lot for that, Jen. Look, relations between countries are not just about what happens between governments. They're also forged by those who visit and move between the countries. And thousands of Americans have made the move to France over the years, including some pretty famous people. And of course, you, Jen. Tell us a bit more about Americans in France. Yeah, 
so here are my five facts about Americans in France. So first up, as of 2020, we make up about 31,000 people living in France. And then my next fact is that of the Americans living in France, like myself, the majority of us are located in Ile-de-France, otherwise known as the Paris region. And actually, that makes up over half of the Americans living in France. So you might hear a lot of English spoken on the streets of Paris, uh, and that's maybe those people that are living in France, but it's also probably a lot of American students. Actually, every year there are over 17,000 American students that come to study abroad in France. And then my next fact is that in terms of the Americans living in France, some are quote-unquote accidental. So meaning they have American citizenship, but without intending to. So maybe they were born in the U.S., but they have no U.S. relatives and they were completely raised in France. Um, And by some estimates, there are actually up to 40,000 of them. And then my final fact is that this summer, American tourists came back in droves. So on average, the American tourists spent about $400, that's 400 euro a day, so $402, excuse me. And then for a 10-day visit, they budgeted over $7,000, so that's more than any other tourist group that came to France this summer. And I'll add one honorary fact. Uh, This is about the French in the United States. So there are over 140,000 of them. And in terms of where they live, they mostly live in New York. Uh, Actually, Brooklyn has grown a lot in its French population over the years. Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. And of course, New Orleans does make the top 10. Okay, there's been some pretty famous Americans who've moved to Paris over the years. Any guesses, guys? You know any of them? Ernest Hemingway? Oh, yeah, probably he's one. More recent? I'm thinking of Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, the actor from Home Alone, he apparently set up home in Paris. So too did Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman, although I don't know if they're still here or not. If any of those three are listening, let us know if you're still here and um, get in touch. Thank you, Are you trying to set yourself up with Scarlett Johansson, Jen? No, I'm thinking of people who can appear on our podcast. Ah, yeah. I think Scarlett Johansson is maybe optimistic, but, you know, hey, give us a call if you're around, Scarlett. Scarlett, I know you're listening. Get in touch. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. In under two years' time, the Olympic Games will be held in Paris. Now, it's too late for any of us to have any hope of competing in those games, Emma and Jen. But what about getting tickets? There are, apparently, 878 Olympic and Paralympic events taking place over 29 days of competition in the summer of 2024. Judging by one of the most read stories on our website, Emma, our readers want to know how they can get their hands on tickets to see some of these events many of which will take place not too far from us, actually, to the north of Paris. So, on behalf of our readers and listeners, how do I get Paris 2024 tickets? Well, it's a lottery, it's a ticket lottery, and that lottery is now open. So, the French organisers have decided to do this via a website that's opened everyone around the world at the same time and on the same basis. So, there's no separate national organisations selling tickets. Everybody applies via this site. But... It's complicated, of course. What is open now, what opened on opens on Thursday, is registration for a draw. You have until the end of January to register online, and what this essentially gets you is like a lottery ticket for the first draw of Olympics tickets. Then after that, there are two different draws. The first draw is in February, and it's for people who request a pack of three events, but they didn't specify what events they want to go to. So essentially, it's for people who are like really big fans of the Olympics, and they just want to see something they're not that bothered about which particular event they uh, they have. If you're successful in that draw, you get an email 
and then you have 48 hours to go online and pick the events you want. And those are on a first come first serve basis. So you'll definitely get tickets for something. But if you really have something specific in mind, you need to get online as quickly as possible and bag your tickets. And then the second draw is in March. And that's for people who've requested single tickets to a specific event. And again, if you're successful, you get an email telling you about it and which event you've got. And then in autumn 2023, we go through the whole process again in the same way, this time with tickets for the Paralympics. Wow. Okay. I should say here that people who do apply through the ballot should remember they've applied. My brother tells this story about how he applied for the Athens Olympics through the ballot, kind of forgot about it. Then he got a call one day from his bank saying there's a, there's a transaction coming through from Athens for like 500 quid. He said, no, no, that's not me. Cancel it. The bank obviously cancelled it. It turns out he had tickets for the second day of the athletics, which included the 100 metre final. <laughs> this is what he said. So anyone who's applying, please remember you have applied. But Emma, are there any other tips or ways to improve your chances? Uh, I wish. There's something called Club Paris 2024, which is kind of like an early bird mailing list, which you can sign up for. This doesn't improve your chances in the draw, but what it does do is give you an early notification if you've got tickets so you've got you'll be first in the queue to pick which events that you want so that's one way to help there are some tickets that the government is buying and they'll distribute them so there's about 400,000 tickets and the games organizers will also be distributing tickets mainly to people who are involved in local grassroots sports so I don't know Ben if your kids do sport maybe now's the time to volunteer to help with that in the hopes of getting a ticket and there'll probably be some kind of corporate hospitality as well so if you can't be bothered to spend two years being some kind of kids football referee uh, maybe just make friends with people whose companies have been working on the Olympics because they'll probably get some tickets as well but honestly if anybody knows any better tips than these then please let me know because I'm crazy excited about this Olympics and I really really want to go yeah are you going in the draw absolutely yeah yes. Jen I think I'll try. I mean, why not? Yeah, definitely. We've got to throw our hat into the ring, see what we get, basically. Okay, thanks for those tips, Emma. And before we go, we just like to offer some recommendations or even life hacks for anybody who's living in France. Emma, do you want to start? Yeah, I have a festive one because it's December 1st now. And that is don't bother writing to Santa. Email him instead. It's too late for me. What, what do you mean? I could have emailed him. You could have emailed him. You, you still can email him. You probably already know, but uh, La Poste, the French post office, employs a team of people who at Christmas call themselves Le Secretariat de Père Noël, so Father Christmas's secretaries. And if uh, if you write to Santa via La Poste, you get a reply via this secretarial team. But it's 2022. Santa has moved online. So you can also email him via the La Poste website. And the same thing, you can email him with your requests for Christmas presents and you will get a reply from this. So this is my tip. Very good. Jen, any tips? Yeah, I've got a postal related tip as well. Uh, so we had to send back a package recently and I was like, I really don't want to go wait in the line at La Poste to send this package. And then I learned that actually you can send and receive packages from the Pointe Relais and these are located all across France. Uh, so if you're looking for an alternative to La Poste, I would recommend uh, looking for your nearest Point Relais. Okay, finally, I don't know if this means anything to you guys, but it was reminded me of recently, there was, I was just watching a row between a person in a cafe about prices. And it reminded me that if you go into a cafe in Paris, you can get different prices for if you stand at the bar, if you sit on the terrace and if you sit down. And I think she was arguing over that she should have had the price that she'd got because she drank coffee at the bar. But then I think she went and sat down. It all got confusing. But basically, it's cheaper if you go for a quick coffee in a Paris cafe 
stand at the bar unless you really do want to sit down. But this happened to me once and I, I, I think I'd ordered a pint and I had about three quarters of it at the bar and then I got hungry and ordered something to eat and the woman was like suggested I should go sit down at the table, which I did. And then when I got the bill, she charged me like instead of three euros 50 for the pint, which would have been bar prices, she charged me like eight euros sitting down prices. So I had a big row with her and she threatened to call the police. <laughs> <laughs> That's Paris prices. The police didn't come. Uh, she didn't call them, of course. She just kind of waited and I waited and then we just kind of went our separate ways and it all ended well. Do you know how else you can get your coffee cheaper in France in general, not just in Paris? Go on. You can be polite. Have you seen these cafes that have like special tariffs? So un café is three euro. Un café s'il vous plaît is 250. And bonjour, un café s'il vous plaît is 150. So I'm never sure exactly how, whether they apply these charges or not, but it's always nice to be polite. You never know. You might get a special surcharge for being rude and just barking your order at the waiter without greeting him and saying please and thank you nicely. Definitely. As we know in France, bonjour goes a long way. Really does. To get what you want. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. We hope you enjoyed listening. We'll be back with more next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.